welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. We talk about the weather a lot. It's a topic of so much conversation that during our lifetimes we'll have spent a total of 10 months talking about the rain, wind, sun, humidity, snow, hail, storms, heat, flooding, and everything in between. If we were consumed by the weather before, that's now being amped up by a whole new level because of climate change. Today's extreme weather is causing droughts, wildfires, mega hurricanes, atmospheric rivers, and temperatures both so cold and hot that people are dying. Extreme weather events fueled by climate change are becoming increasingly more frequent, more destructive, and more costly. Extreme weather cost U.S. taxpayers $99 billion last year, and it's only getting worse. So, as you may have noticed, weather is getting a lot more attention. And that puts the spotlight on meteorologists who deliver their daily weather forecasts. Their job is to break down very complicated scientific terminology and phenomena into something we can all understand and use. The weather segment at the end of the news has now become the news. And often, it's the source of information upon which we make life and death decisions. I meet up with Monica Woods, who's been ABC TV's Sacramento Chief Meteorologist since 2011. Monica's a member of the board of the National Weather Association and is a former president of the local chapter of the American Meteorological Society, which comprises of current and former weather professionals. So how did you get into meteorology? It sounds like you're into meteors, but how did how did you get into thinking that you wanted to to study weather? When I go to talk to school kids about this, they will ask me about comets and meteors, and I'll say, okay, so that's space science. What we're studying is atmospheric science. So anything here that's in the sky, that's on Earth, that's what we're studying. Not that not that we're not integrating. Certainly, the sun being what is powering us here on Earth. I was at University of Florida studying journalism. I loved making productions, and I loved talking to people and learning their story. I never watched the news as a kid. I was a swimmer and I was doing morning practices, evening practices. So there was this small window of opportunity to get my schoolwork done. So when I told my dad that I was thinking of telecommunication, which he said, you're going to be answering phones. I'm sending you to the University of Florida to answer phones. And I said, no, 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 not telecommunications, like a phone operator, journalism. So we had a small PBS station on campus Uh, in Gainesville. And they had half hour broadcast at noon and then about a half hour during the evening. And somebody called out for the weather segment and I filled in and my professor at the time said, I really think that you should pursue this. And it turns out that there was a program that was just kind of getting off the ground at the time at Mississippi State University for people pursuing a journalism career for more of the on-camera aspect of it, but didn't necessarily have the science background for meteorology. I just knew if I was going to be reporting on 
the science of it. I definitely wanted to know what I was saying. I wanted the credibility for one, but also I was curious. This is something I really don't know about. And then I got my first job in meteorology. And from there on out, it was all systems go. I grew up in England, Monica, Mm -hmm. where it's pretty much the main topic of conversation. And even here, the weather is something we want to know about, we care about, and it kind of transcends other types of news. It it really does. And to put it into the perspective of everybody's going to receive the information for different reasons, whether it's I need to get out to go grocery shopping or I'm taking the kids to school. Do I need to get them ready for with rain gear? Um, I personally hate grocery shopping in the rain, so I will at all costs rearrange my schedule to make sure that I don't have to do that. Everything is affected by the day-to-day And then you get into the much larger scale issues of how is it globally affecting us on the local level and not short term, but long term as well. So before we get into the climate impacts and the relationship between climate and weather, like just back to school. So you go to it feels like there's all these it's incredibly complicated when you look at the weather, like there's high and low pressure systems. So the whole barometric scale, then there's kind of how different weather systems collide, hot and warm temperatures. There's a lot that goes into weather. What are the kind of main elements that you study when you're when you're seeking to be a meteorologist? There's a, there's a lot of math, actually. Um, and it depends because when you're doing atmospheric science, are you going to be working at the National Weather Service? Are you going to be working for some kind of government entity? Are you going to be doing those calculations, those equations? So you really have to have all of that background in the math foundation. And then you build off of that with the atmospheric science courses, thermodynamics, even ocean circulations. All of these things come into play. We had to study geology because you've got these interactions on these big scales of how everything is coming together. The water cycle, if you just look at that, what kind of land masses do you have to hold water? Are you looking at big bodies of water that can kind of feed that water cycle? Photosynthesis and things like that, what are the plants taking in and kind of seeing how that all feeds into our water cycle and our weather. An issue which always seems incredibly shorthanded and confounding, like people are like, yeah, it's an El Nino year. So it's... El Nino, which typically would favor super wet conditions in Southern California. Great for them, but our biggest reservoirs are in Northern California. So in a La Nina year, which we happen to be heading into right now, it typically favors a wetter Pacific Northwest and Northern California. Given that our last two-year drought cycle most severely hit the Northern part of the state, having a La Nina year and getting above average precip for Northern California would do a great deal of good just to bring up our water right now because we service the entire state, which can have just incredible political (laughs) um, tendencies. Then you look at some of the oscillations that are in the ocean that have to do with more five, 10-year cycles instead of more yearly cycles of what the sea surface temperatures are. What's interesting is 
I feel like the field of meteorology is just kind of scratching the surface right now of looking at what we are now knowing from satellite imagery and ships that are out in the ocean starting to feed back information. What does that do to our, our climate, our weather? And just kind of getting that feedback loop going. The Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes is making huge strides in understanding these big plumes of moisture, the one that just hit this past Sunday, understanding how they form, why they position themselves in a certain place. And really what they're finding now is it's not just the strength of the storm, but it's the duration, which seems pretty intuitive. How long is that storm going to stay in a certain place? And that's when we start to understand how do we manage that now? So it's really the integration of the research and the forecasting, and that's what they're finding. That's the next generation, that integration, so that we can be better forecasters. And how does that occur in your day? Like, we get to see you on TV and, you know, the weather maps and, you know, the green screen, but, like, to your point about integrating the predictive modeling and all this, I mean, the level of complication that you're synthesizing into simple messages to the public there's an atmospheric river, there's a cyclone bomb, whatever the language is. How do you prepare every day? Well, the beauty of me is I am a pretty simple person when it comes to education. It did not come easy for me. I had to work really hard. And what I think it ended up is giving me appreciation for how other people maybe saying, hey, you just, you just kind of talked over me there. It's more of I'm trying to learn it along with you. So bringing people in on my journey of understanding the research integrated with the forecasting and how I'm understanding it, I'm not perfect. And that's okay. That's part of the learning process. It's not failure. It's not missing a forecast. It's saying, hey, I missed that. Why did I miss that? What happened? What did I look at more than something else that I maybe gave more credence to that may not be that that predictive model may not have done as well as the other one. I take it hard when I miss something and uh, you're only as good as your last broadcast. So, <laughs> so you just move on and say, do better next time. Just do better next time. What does the morning look like? Is there a whole team <laughs> that is like helping you think through this stuff? Is it like nationals information? Like how, how like when you sit down for work, and, and you're preparing for a broadcast, like what are the pieces of information on the screen or table in front of you? I was just talking to my coworker yesterday and I had so many tabs open and so many bookmarks that I said, I know it's in here somewhere. I know it's in here somewhere. I was looking at Lake Tahoe USGS information for how far that lake came up and also uh, DWR for how much the reservoirs were coming Department up. Department of Water Resources. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's USGS, uh, the United States Geological Survey. And so there's that. Uh, that's kind of the sidebar information. That's not even necessarily the forecasting. That's more of the impacts of what has happened or what is being forecasted. So then we go to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and their offshoot, the National Weather Service. So their really primary purpose is to protect life and property. They then will coordinate with other agencies like CAL FIRE during fire season. So it's this almost spider web of information that you navigate through and end up with potentially 50 tabs open and a thousand bookmarks. So it's it's knowing 
what to look at each day. I feel like the biggest thing is listening. Weather is always a topic of conversation. So it's not necessarily my interests, but it's the viewers. It's the residents. It's my neighbors. It's the kids that I go to talk to at schools. What questions are they asking? What is the the difference between climate and weather? When we're talking about like the climate globally or the climate in the U.S. and the weather, they're, they're connected, but like how, how are they different? It used to be so separated. We, within, I would say, the last five to 10 years, we really started to understand that weather is a byproduct of the changing climate. And we're starting to understand more. And now we're understanding that, no, it's extremes. So it can be extremes with hurricanes. It can be extremes with the atmospheric river that just hit California. It can be extremes with heat. It can be extremes with drought. But all of these weather nuggets of days, uh, we're starting to understand, okay, the hottest day ever recorded in Death Valley that's part of the climate story. And we we didn't necessarily tie that in less than a decade ago. These weather events that we're experiencing today is tied to the bigger climate story, longer range, broader scale events um, in these cycles of five, 10 years, really seeing decadal changes. I mean, this is the time to be a meteorologist, Monica. I mean, it's insane. It just, it feels too much. Like watching the weather used to be kind of stress-free. And now you look at it and you're like, oh my God, Monica, what's going to come next? Right. And, and part of that too is, I suppose having young kids has helped me. When I would do the weather and I could sense of some fear in them, it was, I don't need to scare them. I need to prepare them. And that's really the shift I feel. And every presenter is different and everybody's passion is different. So you're going to get different uh, messages, different presentations from every single person who's looking at almost the exact same information. But that's where the personality I feel like comes into play. And People kind of gravitate to one personality or another. Mine probably comes from being a mom and a very active person. Other people are more science-based. One of the challenges, though, that we've really faced for meteorology is the access online and through our phones. That you can wake up in the morning and say, oh, it's going to be 65 when I wake up and it's going to be 85 at 3 p.m. You don't necessarily need to turn on the TV for that. So, what other information that are impacts from the weather can we start to integrate into our weather forecasting? And that's really where I feel the field is changing. You can't just dump numbers on somebody because they already can get it. And especially the next generation coming up. They're just, they're not going to give you the time of day. And there's personalities that come and go, you know, meteorologists that are the dancing meteorologist and the, the comedic meteorologist. But how long is that sustainable? And when it comes to a life-threatening event, how much are you going to watch that person and say, well, do they really know what they're talking about? So there's a, there's a balance there. And a lot of us are trying to navigate through that new generation of information and how they receive it. 
And it seems like one of the ways you contextualize it, it's like it's connecting the dots, right? Mm -hmm. So when you talked about Lake Tahoe, like I learned from you, it went up a foot. The entire lake went up as a result of all the rain we just had. And connecting those dots, I mean, it feels like on climate change, meteorologists, whether you like it or not, kind of the frontline communicator to the public because experiencing all this extreme weather is real and you're the people who talk about it. And like, how has that evolved? It's evolved because people are asking the questions and want answers to it. Right after the Tubbs fire, which blew through Santa Rosa, I did an interview with Cal Fire and it was Ken Pimlot, who was the director at the time. And we went up to Cameron Park because I said, wow, you drive up Highway 50 and it is just brown grass. Then you get into these hilly areas. And you know, 10 years ago, it was all a Southern California thing. It was Santa Ana winds and Southern California fire danger. But we were looking at climate modeling, knowing that that danger was quickly migrating north. And all the climate models kept saying, Northern California is in for the biggest risk of catastrophic fires. And Ken said, it's just so hard to tell that story when you're just looking at modeling but how difficult would it be to get out of a Cameron Park or just an area when you look at these little hillsides, the the windy roads of these communities. Like paradise. Paradise, exactly. And the, the other thing is how much we rely on technology. GPS was out. The cell tower was down. It was dark. And there were people trying to go one way when it was blocked because of fire and it's so scary. So knowing that those things are now not in the future, they are happening, that now has to be a part of the forecasting to, again, protect life and property. I know you're connected to the national meteorological world. How does that inform, like, is, is that larger group kind of coming to the same recognition that you are, which is, wow, we now need to explain climate change and the connections? I would say we're the low-hanging fruit here in California because we've been living it through the historic drought of 2012-2016. And then just shortly after, after a drought-busting year, we're right back into it again. And how much our economy relies on knowing what the weather, certainly with agriculture, but even movie production for Southern California, the firefighting resources and how much money is being dumped into that, uh, air quality, how much the health costs have risen because of poor air quality and how much funding is going into the San Joaquin Valley to clean up the air there. We're not going to change the fact that California's weather is kind of what it is. And it's kind of the double-edged sword because we don't necessarily want the rain during the summer because then we can water the plants when we want to and we don't have to deal with mold issues and things like that. But if we don't get the rain, then we run into trouble. Learning how all of that feeds into society is pretty easy in California to get traction, I would say you go to other parts of the country and there are places that just don't want to hear about it. It's just, and, and I've talked to other meteorologists, in fact, just last week, uh, somebody from a different state, and they said there's so much reliance on 
a certain industry to feed the income, the economy, that we get a lot of pushback when we start talking about climate change. So we're in a very fortunate position here in California for all our craziness. I know it's 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 nutty sometimes, but you know what? We're here for a reason. So I'm thinking we all have a little nuttiness here in California and uh, just trying to make the economy keep clicking as the fifth largest in the world. weather is going to change. The hots get hotter, the dries get drier, the wets get wetter. How are you thinking in your job in the next five years about building that individual resiliency through your daily communications with your audience? I would say certainly within the last year, with the number of interviews that I have done, I am so much more optimistic than perhaps I was a year ago. We have so many scientists here and innovators here in California that we lead the way in so many of these new technologies and water management resiliency programs for conservancy, hearing from farmers how they're putting their land into natural conservancy so that some of their land can never be built on because of the fertile ground or just the access to groundwater. You know, we we kind of forget what's underneath us here, and that's a big source of the potential for our water supply. We don't have to build anything above ground to spend millions, if not billions of dollars for new reservoirs. We've got it right underneath our feet. But if we start getting these programs in place, when we are hitting some big, drier, warmer, wetter, colder uh, weather patterns, it will it will preserve that then. And even, I mean, that's on a state level. We've got so many local agencies that are doing their part. Regional Water Authority, which is looking at how to best save groundwater and also the education. I think that's huge because when I started talking about groundwater and the aquifer, everybody in the newsroom kind of was like, oh, okay, can you explain that? Can you do a graph? I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about because we can't see it. And I think that also goes back to how do you explain something that we really can't see? Like, can you see the water vapor in the sky right now? No. So how do I, how do I make that understandable to school kids or to the viewers. That's a challenge, but I love that challenge because I, I need it. I need it described like that too. So in the newsroom, Monica, it feels like the connection with you talking about the weather is like really important to people, to viewers and listeners. And like, does that help you not only educate the newsroom, but kind of elevate the stories that you care about? Yes. I think it takes a certain type of person to adapt to the changing questions that are being asked. And without that adaptive quality, I don't know how people are going to survive necessarily in meteorology because, it, again, it can't be a data dump of numbers. It's too accessible. You become irrelevant. I love going out and getting to talk to people that are affected by it. I went down to the Central Valley, to Porterville. And this was probably about four years ago. So they were just 
still in the midst of a bit of the drought, but starting to come out of it, it looked like an abandoned city because they were so hard hit. Many people are on wells. And I talked to this guy and he said, when he turned on his shower, dirt came out. He thought something was wrong with his well. He started talking to his neighbors. They had the same thing. There was literally no water. Now, this guy was living in about half of a mobile home because a tree had fallen because it had become a victim of drought, taken out half of his mobile home. His yard was dirt and barely weeds because barely anything was growing. And this was after the drought had ended. They were still suffering a year afterwards. Getting out and being able to talk to the people that are actually affected by what I am forecasting every day has a profound impact and a lasting one. And clearly, four years later, I'm st- I still remember talking to him. And he called himself the water boy because he would go around. And this is the other part, the equity part. He would go around and in the middle of the night, go get water from government agencies that were delivering water and give it to the undocumented workers that were there because they were too scared to go get water. They said, I just need it. I just need it for my child. I don't, don't get any excess. I just need it for my child. And you think about the inequity of how climate change is affecting those that are so disenfranchised. And that's another whole part of the story. The more I watch the weather, the more I kind of understand its impacts that you're describing, whether it's drought or extreme heat. Like, how does that make you feel like it? Because for me, I wake up sometimes just super stressed and thinking like, oh, my God, this is a crazy place that we're leaving to our kids. I I tend to be a pretty optimistic, spin things to make sure that, okay, this is happening you need to be present to what is happening right now. So we talk about all these things that are, in the, that are in the future, but what can we do right now, in this moment, right here, this second, this millisecond? So there's, there's value in thinking of the future. There's value in thinking of the past. But if we live in either one of those, we're not acting on the now. And that is why I educate myself so that all I can do, I don't want to be preachy because everybody's life is different. You know, somebody made me living like, oh, that's great that you can walk downtown, but I, I'm living out in the in the suburbs. That's not possible for me. Totally fine. I get it. I, I lived out, I was a suburban kid. So that didn't work for me then. If I can help to bring awareness of what is even possible to do to help with bigger climate issues, then great. And people may not want to hear it. Well, Monica, it seems like you're having a really big impact on on so many people. How do we think about messaging um, the relationship between greenhouse gases with our weather? And are, are there any good organizations that you look to for information? Climate Central is an organization that is actually filled with some former broadcast meteorologists, but also climate scientists that break it down for people like me that are broadcasting to tie in what does this really mean to me? So we had a big wind event. Was it so strong that it shut down the wind turbines or was it just strong enough that it generated enough 
power for a million homes. So kind of understanding that. How Okay, it was a really hot day, but guess what? Guess how much solar energy we just received from that. The um, International Panel on Climate Change came out with like, it's code red for the planet, like, you know, thousands of pages of scientific documents. Is there modeling that ties kind of future scenarios from the global climate to what our weather will look like in California in the future? Oh, yeah, for sure. The highs in Sacramento right now are expected to be closer to what Tucson, Arizona is right now. So there's things like that that tie in something that's more relevant and you can kind of visualize what we're talking about. We don't have a huge issue with the sea level rise on the coast, but we do in the Delta. In fact, it's one of the most flood-prone areas for sea level rise because it's the lowest lying area. So when sea level rise happens in the Pacific, it's going to come right through that delta and all these homes. This is what we're predicting. This, These are the islands that would be underwater. You know, it's this, this area of islands through the delta. Giving those kinds of visualizations, I think helps because when I was studying meteorology, that was one of the things that I had trouble kind of understanding when you're talking about uh, different levels of the atmosphere, the troposphere, the mesosphere and going, okay, right. But, or water vapor, as I mentioned earlier, or pressure. You can't really see pressure. So how do you describe that? I get a migraine every time the barometric <sighs> pressure changes. Yeah. Knees that ache or arthritis that that flares up. So those those simulation, like one, one of the things that just talking of agriculture, like they're California vineyards now that are looking at moving to like British Columbia because to your point, it's hard to grow grapes in Tucson. So like there's a lot happening that is contingent upon weather forecasting. A lot of economic decisions you talked about, you know, whether it's planting almonds or rice or all the crops in the valley. But like when I talk to farmers, they're, they're very, very sensitized to weather information. If people want to stay in California, they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. And again, we have this very unique current climate where we have a rainy season and a dry season. I did a story recently about, it was a a series called Scorched Earth. And we were talking specifically about agriculture. And one of the farmers who I... I've done stories with him, Bruce Rominger. He's out in Yolo County. And his family's been in farming for decades. Uh, Went to UC Davis. And he said he had been reading this book on ancient agriculture societies. And he said he was stunned to learn that many prolific agriculture societies lasted 70 years. We're not that far into this game here. And I love his quote. He said, I wonder, are we just messing it up quicker than anybody else? And I think a lot of people are thinking that. And it's not too late. And that's why I think the innovation is coming out of the desire to survive at this point. Living in Arizona in the middle of the summer is not terribly survivable for most people. Certainly not the hundreds of thousands that are living there now, but they found a way to do it. So when it comes down to surviving, you kind of become that mama bear that you're going to protect things that you really want to protect. And I feel like a lot of people are getting it right now. 
we've never really experienced anything like this. For me, it's saying, here's where we are. Here's where we'd like to be. And until we get there, how can we work together to preserve this very unique space? We can do it. I know we can do it. A huge thank you to Monica Woods for talking with Podshipper today. Meteorologists like Monica are on the front lines of communicating and contextualizing how climate-related extreme weather impacts our daily lives. Translating complex scientific data and predictive modeling into messages that we can all understand is critical if we're going to combat climate change and weathercasters are leading the charge. Monica's daily broadcasts don't just begin and end with the green screen. She goes into the field to talk with farmers, scientists, water managers, and everyday Californians to find the stories that inspire action and even hope. Her message is that ultimately, we protect the things that we love. Thanks to each of you for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, let's all work to help our future weather be a little less extreme.